Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On the first part of today's episode, we'll be talking all about the movies of John Huston, a remarkably eclectic 20th century director known for his crackling genre films and daredevil machismo. Starting this Sunday and running through early November, Yale University Dean Mark Schenker will be hosting a four-part series at Best Video in Hamden on how to read a film. The series will focus on unpacking some of the fundamental techniques of filmmaking through a close examination of several of Houston's most celebrated mid-century movies, The Maltese Falcon, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, The Asphalt Jungle, and The African Queen. We'll talk with Schenker about how this series came together, the unique cinematic world of John Houston, and the pleasures and rewards of learning how to read a movie. On the second segment of the show, I'll be joined by WNHH station manager Lucy Gelman and New Haven Independent staff writer Alan Appel for a review of American Honey, a new movie from director Andrea Arnold that follows a roving group of teenagers as they road trip across the country, exploring the American heartland while selling magazine subscriptions door-to-door and listening to a lot of Rihanna. But first, I'm very happy to welcome to the studio Mark Schenker. Mark is a dean of academic affairs and has lectured in the English department at Yale University. This Sunday, October 23rd at 2 p.m., he'll be hosting the first of four lectures on a series on how to read a film that will focus on the works of John Huston. Mark, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure Thanks to have you much. here. Happy to be here. Okay, so we spoke last November, about a year ago now, in anticipation of your series on Stanley Kubrick, and you mentioned um, that one of the kind of precipitating incidents for this How to Read a Film series in general was when you were in a book group back in 2009, and Inglorious Bastards had just come out. And some some of your fellow book group participants said, Mark, I'm not sure if this is a great movie or a terrible movie. Tell me about how this series came together and how Inglorious Bastards you have helped a, spur you have on. a good memory, Tom. So I've been doing uh, book groups in area libraries throughout Connecticut now for about 30 years, back then about 20 years, and only uh, literature sessions when, as you say, one of my patrons emailed me and said, I've just seen this movie I can't tell, this is a quote, whether it's a masterpiece or a mess. And I wrote to her to say that if you approach the film from the point of view of it being a combination of genres, you'd actually see the power of it as a movie about movies. And she said, oh, why don't you do that at a library? And I said, nobody's asked me. And within a few weeks, uh, the the community service director at Fairfield, Susan Zuckerman, reached out to me and said, would you want to do a series on film? And that spring, this was the spring of 2011, I did uh, How to Read a Film Looking at Genre, and we did Rear Window for a thriller. We did The Searchers for a Western, and we did Some Like It Hot for a comedy to show how if you look at those movies as genre movies and then look at Inglorious Bastards, you see how it's a thriller Western comedy and not a World War II movie. That's how it started. One of the... uh aspects of this series that so interests me, and especially the one of the aspects of the origin of this series, is that it really started as a way to examine genre, genre in movies, um, but also genre in art. And I know that you have lectured in the English department, um, and you have taught kind of similar kind of public library or, you know, series geared for the public on how to read and how to examine closely works of literature. And I wonder, uh, as you put together this how to read a film series, you know, this, the, the verb in this series is read, right? Mm-hmm. What, what are the kind of parallels with 
um, your thoughts on how to approach literature and how to approach movies? Like, why why is that an appropriate parallel here? Yeah. And how is this? Um, how is genre an appropriate subject yeah. for this series? So I'll start to say that the, what they have in common about the reading is, although I am capable of teaching Victorian literature, which used to be my field to graduate students, where there are lots of other issues about scholarship that have to be brought to bear, the lecturing and book discussions that I do, both in people's homes and in area libraries, has to do with taking what Virginia Woolf called the common reader and saying, if you want to get more out of this book than just a good read, how might you think about it differently from just following along? And so very basic elements of what happens when you step back and say, this thing was made by somebody. Why does this chapter end where it does? Why does it have chapters? Who's telling the story? Uh, Why does it end the way it does? Is it because the hero has recognized something? Or is it because we recognize something? So a very basic understanding that this is a work of art, of artifice, I can look at how it's made. It has that in common with film. So when we look at film, we talk about uh, the difference of the camera angle. I haven't taken any film theory or filmmaking courses, but what does it mean that these two people are in a two-shot or alternating one-shots over somebody's shoulder? What does it happen? What does it mean that this sequence is reverse tracking? So I take those elements. And then the other question is, as with literature, how does this microcosmic look at the parts relate to something bigger? The author's life, the genre of the work, the cultural milieu. Of course, it can be all those things at once, but most people can't do it all at once. So I'm interested when I'm teaching literature to say, we like to think that certain genres have a uniformity. I know what a science fiction story is. But why is Frankenstein so different from Dracula? And how do they, what do they have in common with Invasion of the Body Snatchers? It has to do with their moment, or their author, or their director. So the way that how to read a film fits with literature is, I always have a context beyond the particular film, either genre. Uh, next spring at Fairfield, we're doing four great film noir, or a director. And so this Houston series is not mainly about the films of John Houston. It's how to read a film, and let's do a quartet of Houston films so you also get some insight into the body of his work. Before, and I'm you know, very eager to talk about why John Houston and what you see as the kind of defining characteristics of his style and how he could be a good kind of entry point into understanding the basic kind of fundamental techniques of filmmaking. But first, you, I mean, this series is positioned quite explicitly as a non-academic series. It's one directed to a general public. And you've mentioned that you have taught and can teach Victorian literature at the graduate level. Um, but this is, you have a slightly different audience in mind for these series. Could you tell me a bit about how, how, how is this series kind of designed more for the public than for an academic context? And why is that, um, I mean, why is that important to you? Why is that something that you're interested in, in doing? Yeah. So, uh, it's important to me because this is how I myself came to literature, which is, although it can be a narrow discipline in the academy, it's really such an element in culture and the life of everybody that I want to make more people able to experience another dimension of literature and film than just entertainment, which is not a small thing. I, I really want people to enjoy these movies. So part of my thinking is let's try to pick movies that an average moviegoer would know of or would like to see. 
So although you could do a series on how to read a film with very rarefied, more arcane uh, movies, just as good, um, more independent movies or non-Hollywood movies, international movies, silent films, and I would be uh, competent to do those. But I'm not as willing or eager because the people who come out say, I've seen Notorious, I've seen Some Like It Hot, what can you tell me about it that I don't already know? And that's the challenge. Um, I, I have great admiration for art house films, but this series is decidedly mainstream Hollywood. Going back to our conversation about Kubrick a year ago, one of the quotes that really jumped out to me, and this was kind of Kubrick specific, but I think it could be a nice segue into our conversation about Houston, is that you said one of the kind of things about Kubrick movies, Dr. Strangelove included, that so interests you is how people, kind of general audiences, tend to be a bit reluctant to apply political and ideological beliefs to works of kind of popular entertainment. And one of the goals of this series is to kind of encourage audiences to say, this is a, a political statement that you are watching on screen. This isn't just a farce, or it's, it's not just meant to make you laugh, but it's meant to make you think critically about, you know, the kind of warmongering nature of, of uh, Cold War America. And I wonder if, with that kind of hovering in the back of our minds, Take me into, or maybe introduce me and the listeners a bit to John Huston. I know you don't necessarily think this series is, is just about Houston. It's a way into understanding film, but who is this filmmaker um, at, at, the, at the top of this? Right. So um, I've come to him now at best, partly because he's the next in a series of great uh, mainstream directors. So it began with Hitchcock, uh, went to Kubrick, um, the sort of, opposite of Hitchcock, the, the American who went to England uh, after the uh, Brit who came here, Billy Wilder as another great and very varied director, and then to John Huston to try to pick another great director with a wide array of films so that I could pick four of more than 40, and people could say, oh, I like him well enough now. I wonder if I could see anything else. Yes, there are 42 more films you could see. Uh, somebody who was still alive and producing well into the latter half of the last century, which means people know his work. Uh, he's not somebody who died in 1947. Um, what, what interests me about him is he's, he makes great films. He's very interested in adaptations. All of his major movies are adaptations of literary sources and sometimes quite impressive literary sources like Moby Dick, The Red Badge of Courage. He sees himself very much as a writer, so he has that dimension of, of filming an adaptation of a written work that has some of the literacy. Maltese Falcon um, is, is in its novel form basically a script. It's very lean, and he doesn't put bells and whistles on it. He also had a background as a painter, and so whereas Kubrick brings a photographer's eye and Hitchcock brings a graphic design artist's eye, he used to write the, the cards for silent films, create them. Uh, uh, Houston comes to his movies as a painter. Almost every movie he did, he storyboarded. He did every shot from Maltese Falcon, his first movie, before filming it, his first directing movie. And he was very interested in that kind of composition. He was famous for being a director who edited while filming. That is to say, he did not do what many directors do, which is take lots and lots of shots and then figure out later on. He, he said that in most of his movies, he didn't even know who was doing the editing. 
Um, and so those things interest me, that he comes from a writer's background but has a painter's eye, and the compositions of his films are very visual, and the plot line is very literate. Now, I'm so interested that you started in this kind of biographical intro to Houston by talking about his artistic background, and I think that's a wonderful parallel to Kubrick and to Hitchcock, and that if Kubrick brings a photographer's eyes, a photographer's eye, Houston may bring a, a writer's uh, ear and uh, painter's eye. But I think that one of the aspects of his kind of personality and personal history that, if anyone is familiar with Houston, may jump to the front of their mind is that he was a notorious kind of adventurer. Uh, he wasn't just a, a painter, but also a uh, a lightweight kind of prize fighting boxer in his teens in California. He was he rode in the Mexican cavalry in the nineteen I think twenties or thirties, and he's known as. I mean, I think that when you talk about his style of editing, kind of doing it more on the fly than taking a lot of footage and kind of sitting down and going through it, that may get to that kind of active, impetuous, uh, adventurous nature of his. But when you think about Houston, when you look at his films and you, as you try to help people understand them, does that background of Houston, the adventurer, come into play at all for you? It does in this sense, and that is, and you could add hunting to that, and he himself was an actor, uh, married five times, whether you think of that as adventurous or not. It's certainly true that I think he saw filmmaking as one of many human enterprises. And one of the things that's refreshing about him, and in fact, a number of these directors that I do, is he's not rarefied or a dandy about filmmaking. What he wants in filmmaking is to reflect, I think, his vision, if he has one, and he, he has directed a wide array of films. Uh, but one one of his visions is that uh, the quest for some kind of success or meaning and its failure is a representation of human nature, Uh, that he's not so much making a political statement as he's making a statement about human life. And certainly many of his movies, Moby Dick is a quest. Uh, The Maltese Falcon is famously a quest. The African Queen, they're on a mission. It turns out that it, it doesn't work and it does work, but that's the kind of atypical the Asphalt Jungle is a quest as a heist. The treasure of Sierra Ma- of the Sierra Madre is a quest for gold. And all of these except the last film in the series, I don't think this will ruin anything, uh, The African Queen, end badly in terms of the quest. But they reveal something about human nature in a bimodal way, which is we want to aspire to adventure, to questing, even though the odds are against us. So very few of his movies have happy endings in the conventional sense. But what a ride. You know, I think that he's in, uh, his movies can be put up in an interesting juxtaposition with Stanley Kubrick and that one of the key kind of themes or types of story that Kubrick is interested in is the kind of unraveling of the well-plotted uh, plan. I mean, if his, his The Killing um, is kind of a perfect counterpoint to The Asphalt Jungle, even insofar as it stars Sterling Hayden as the kind of mastermind of a, a heist. And that is another one where, you know, uh, this crime thriller, this plot to rob a racetrack is undone by human folly and also just kind of natural unforeseen occurrences. And I think similar kind of elements undo the asphalt jungle. But, you know, in, in reading about Houston and his kind of critical reception, sometimes he's been criticized as too pessimistic of a director and that the stories always end up kind of you know, if the African queen is the only one that ends with a somewhat positive ending, every his his losers don't always um, end up redeeming themselves at the end. And very often people either 
find themselves caught in this endless pursuit of meaning, or at least something that they think is meaningful, but in fact is not, usually money, uh, or they wind up dying in the horse field in which they, in which right. they grew up. Right. And I wonder if you think of him as a fundamentally pessimistic director, or if that is a, the wrong approach to understand this bimodal well, view. I, I'm not prepared to say it's the wrong approach, but I am prepared to say it's not the way I think of directors. So I do think you can write, a, you can be a very positive person with a lot of enthusiasm, enthusiasm for human nature and human desire and still recognize that mainly things don't work out right. And so it's true. Uh, African Queen has uh, a happy ending that changed the ending even from the book. He was willing to do it. Turns out a lot of critics thought it was not a very good movie because of the ending. Um, the Dead... Uh, he had the good fortune that that was the last film that he directed. In fact, he was dying while he was making it. He died before its premiere. Uh, that's a movie that actually ends with a very qualified happy ending, as the Joy Story does, but is really a celebration of um, human desire, even when we know it ends with being dead. So I, I wouldn't think of him so much as a pessimistic director. Uh, the killing, of course, Kubrick's killing, is an homage partly to Asphalt Jungle, which came earlier. Um, Kubrick also was very interested in the failure of the system and tended to be more interested in the mechanism of things like a clockwork orange or the computer uh, that's in uh, 2001. But what they have, what they have in common, I think is the respect for how much people want things to work out, whether it's high ideals or just larceny, uh, and how the odds are against you. And I would say also, it's not pessimistic. Those kinds of movies, I think John Huston would say, make better films than movies of success and happiness. You're listening to Deep Focus on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. And I'm your host, Tom Breen. We're talking with Mark Schenker about an upcoming series at Best Video, organized around the films of John Huston, but really teaching a general audience how to read a film. And before we kind of jump into the four movies that you've picked for this series, I'm curious to circle back to that comment about how Huston was known for adapting uh, works of literature, and really great works of literature often. I mean, Kubrick and Hitchcock were no strangers to finding the stories that they wound up putting on film in books. But I think especially Hitchcock was quite explicit in selecting books that or selecting stories that he didn't necessarily think worked um, that kind of realized their fullest artistic potential as a book. Um, if Vertigo was also based on a relatively obscure French novel, it's, it's one that he uh, kind of reimagined for the screen and thought had more cinematic potential than literary potential. Houston, on the other hand, was tackling some pretty, you know, literary heavyweights. The Dead, you mentioned, Moby Dick, um, even something like uh, The Maltese Falcon, even though it's part of this uh, kind of hard-boiled detective fiction from mid-century America. It's still celebrated as, as a novel, not just as fodder for film. And I wonder if we can kind of begin to talk about some of the kind of cinematic style, not just the, the stories and themes that Houston's interested in, but what you will be kind of pointing out that Houston does to convey story. If you can think about how he, how he approaches literary adaptations, why are these more than just retellings of stories that work better or maybe differently in other formats? So um, I, w I would uh, begin talking to him to contrast him to Kubrick, who also was interested in adaptation, but Kubrick was interested in books that he thought were good books that could be done better as movies, that could be done better as movies. 
And so he doesn't take a work like The Maltese Falcon, which was not only well-known when it came out. Um, two movie versions were made of it before this one, The Maltese Falcon, and neither of them was very successful or very good, um, and they weren't very close to the novel. What Kubrick would do is he would pick a work like Barry Lyndon, which almost nobody outside of an English department had ever read, and say, this is a good story that would make a great film. By contrast, Houston would say, this is a great book, um, The Dead, uh, Moby Dick, The Red Badge of Courage, and I think I can make it a great movie by being attentive to what made it great as a book. So I do not generally say this is a very Houston kind of shot right here, partly because we have a very small sample for movies of over 40, and partly because a lot of people don't want to be disadvantaged to say, I don't know enough about Houston to know how this is representative of what I'm not seeing. So what I, what I tend to do is say, see what we're seeing right here? When he is walking towards the camera and the camera is backing up, it gives a feeling of fatalism, and here's why. I try to engage people in what they can know right then looking at the screen. I'm so glad you brought up that the tracking shot example, because that was one that you went to over and over again in your Kubrick series and a, a style of filmmaking that he's quite fond of, whether in Paths of Glory or The Killing or anything else, where uh, the camera is kind of pulling back as a figure walks towards it, and fatalism is exactly the feeling that the audience gets, that we know the direction that the character is heading, but we also know that he's being led by the camera. There's no way that he can move kind of apart from this path that has been predetermined for him. And I think that one of the things I so love about this series is that it identifies those specific elements of filmmaking technique, like a tracking shot that may be intimidating for people with non-professional backgrounds or maybe not even any, any history or really interest in understanding the terminology of filmmaking, but it identifies a, a specific relatively simple element, and then it talks about the effect that that has. And I do, you know, watching these Houston movies, I'd, I'd be interested to hear you talk about the diversity of genres that he covers. I mean, these are kind of four very different movies in terms of the, the genres within which they're working, but also their types of shots that I do think crop up over and over again, particularly the way that Houston frames um, three characters within the context of a single scene. And I think in the Maltese Falcon in particular, we see... Humphrey Bogart's private detective, Sam Spade, constantly flanked by police officers or in between. Either he is the one doing the interrogating, he's the one being interrogated, he is eluding them, or he feels trapped by them. And I think Houston, maybe that's the painterly eye of his, but he has a way of um, of configuring frames to fit three faces and three bodies in a way that really reminded me most of Akira Kurosawa, the Japanese director, more so than anyone else, in that you have these kind of pyramid structures of of people within the frame, but they always convey something about whether the character at the center of it feels trapped or feels as if he's kind of pulling the wool over the eyes of the people he's talking to. Um, I, I wonder if that's a type of shot that you think is Houston-esque or if there are other um, kind of specific examples that come to mind when you think of Houston as a filmmaker that he kind of goes back to well, again actually, and again. Uh, you're anticipating what you said about the, <laughs> the three figures, three face shots is very common in Houston. Um, it's very marked, not only in the Maltese Falcon, as you say, but in the treasure of Sierra, the Sierra Madre, where it's three people who come together on this quest. Um, I think it's partly that if two's company, three's a complication. And certainly that's part of the dynamic, both in the Maltese Falcon, here I'm a detective and I have a partner, but then the femme fatale shows up and thinks he's complicated, or the two men who uh, know each other first 
uh, meet Walter Houston, who has the knowledge of where the gold is, and then it becomes complicated. Um, I do think of it as a, a typical kind of Houston shot. I think he's also interested in how that third figure complicates things. It's interesting to think that in English, uh, there's this and there's that. There's no single word for the other thing. We have to use the phrase the other thing. And part of what mucks up a system is the third thing, the unforeseen thing. What I'll say about my uh, intention to do this for a general audience, and and this is very much what animates the series, um, I could tell them something about the studio system or who produced this particular movie or why when a director went from uh, MGM to RKO, it made a difference in the movie. That's interesting, but that's not the series. I could tell them something about Marxism or feminism or the ideological content of film, which interests me. That's not the series. What people are reluctant about when a scholar talks about popular culture is they worry, oh, you're reading too much into it. Now, I don't worry about that when I'm doing it. But what I try to do is read out of the film and say, but you're seeing exactly what I'm seeing. Can't you agree that in this movie, there's no good reason for James Stewart in Rear Window to throw uh, to be thrown out a window by Raymond Burr when he's in a wheelchair and could be choked to death? And so I'm not talking about Marxism or ideology. He's throwing him through the window because it has a meaning for the movie that's not literal. And we can agree he's throwing him through the window instead of hitting him over the head with a pot. Audiences respond very positively to, oh, you're actually giving me the materials I need to see what you're showing me and then to decide what, what it means. One element of uh, kind of storytelling that I find a bit baffling in the asphalt jungle that I, you know, when I go to the lecture, I'm curious to see you tackle is when Sterling, ha- Sterling Hayden playing this kind of hick goon who's the muscle on this kind of jewel thief squad, this turns down the jewels and the money offered from the ringleader in order to go back to his kind of idyllic country homestead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's kind of a, it's, it's a baffling moment in that everything seems to be motivated by greed. You know, up until that point, everyone is working towards accomplishing the specific thing, which is to get money, to get paid, to get out of there. And then all of a sudden, I think kind of for the convenience of the plot, but also to tell something about the character, uh, he has turned down uh, the the offer from his boss. But I, uh, I want to make sure to get your thoughts um, on, we've spoken a bit about the Maltese Falcon, and we get some dates out there. That's October 23rd, this upcoming Sunday at 2 p.m. at Best Video. The second movie um, in the series, October 30th, Sunday, 2 p.m., is The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And you have... You, I love how you mentioned that in English we don't have a word for the other thing and how that figures so uh, prominently in Houston's movies. In The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, the other thing is actually kind of the benevolent thing and that the other thing is Walter Houston, uh, the character played by John Houston's dad, who is the kind of experienced gold prospector who takes these young kind of down-on-their-luck uh, prospectors in Mexico on a trip to find a big score. And he is one of the few kind of non-malevolent, non-conniving influences, um, outside influences in Houston movie. I wonder if you could tell us, just because this movie is, this was a discovery for me, I hadn't seen it before, it was such a delight to watch it, but um, can you tell us a bit about why you picked The Treasure of the Sierra Madre and, and what interests you about that movie? So the main reason I picked it is I was interested in picking The Maltese Falcon because it's its first film, and then looking at four masterpieces within a tight period, 
So from beginning to end, the period covers a decade. And because the treasure of the Sierra Madre is 1948, it fits into that 1941-1951 span. It's also considered not just one of his best movies, but a great American movie. It not only has the image of uh, the quest and the failed quest, but without giving too much of the plot away, although I hope people, even if they know some of the outcome, will realize that doesn't ruin the movie, um, the Walter Houston character is interesting because although the two other men are a better and worse version of lower uh, moral characters, uh, Walter Houston's character, he's the one who says we have to heal the mine after we've taken its goal to one. He's the one who's called away by indigenous people to be a healer and then honored for that. And when the movie at the end goes wrong, he has the great cosmic laugh that it doesn't really matter, which the other characters are not capable of. Uh, to go back to the Asphalt Jungle just briefly, part of what happens with the Sterling Hayden character is he's tired of the Asphalt Jungle. And when the plot has gone wrong, his new quest is to get home, uh, an, another kind of quest. And, and the, the sensibility of the movie changes from this tough guy who is the hoodlum who's really going to make this work to just wanting to get home on time, uh, home in the, in the largest sense of home. So that's the, the third movie in the series, The Asphalt Jungle, which we playing on November 6th at 2 p.m. on Sunday. Uh, and then the fourth movie, The African Queen, will be playing November 13th, Sunday at 1 p.m. at Best Video. And three of these, I, I understand that you wanted to pick four movies that you know, are kind of widely regarded as masterpieces. People may be somewhat familiar with them. They were filmed in a relatively compressed time period over the course of a decade. But also John Huston, maybe more so than any other director um, in you know, mid-century America, really um, reinvented the image of Humphrey Bogart in each movie, and Humphrey Bogart being maybe one of the most iconic American actors of all time. And I wonder if, you know, three of these movies, Maltese Falcon, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and African Queen, star Bogart. Yes. And I wonder if you could talk for a minute just about that relationship between Houston and Bogart in terms of what you see on screen. I mean, for a face that probably most people interested in movies will recognize from Casablanca, if not one of these movies. Uh, this is a, a kind of gruff and a snarl that is kind of one of the most representative faces in American movies. How, how did Houston help shape the image of Humphrey Bogart? So they actually made six movies together. This is, these are three of the six of them. And I did not pick them so that um, Humphrey Bogart would be overrepresented. It just turns out that he's in three of these four great movies. And I think um, I think it's fair to say that Houston was drawn to Humphrey Bogart as a person and to the tough guy image that he had on the screen. But if you think about the three movies, he's a truly honorable detective in a film noir. Turns out he really has standards uh, in that famous last scene where he explains why he can't do what he's being asked to do, trying to be discreet. Um, in uh, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, he's somebody who goes... Uh, gold crazy. He, he really loses any sense of morality or bearing. And in The African Queen, it's really an, an odd creation for him because he is kind of a tough guy character who not only falls in love, but gets kind of giddy. Uh, there are scenes in it where he, he has something of the spark that we know he has in movies outside of Houston. I think Houston knew that Humphrey Bogart could do almost anything and was interested in directing him to great performances. And Houston is known for getting 
Oscar-winning performances from his own daughter, from his own father, from a lot of people. He's a good actor's director, I think. And as you mentioned towards the beginning of this episode, Houston was also, you know, not just a painter, not just a director, not just a writer, but also an actor himself. And maybe he's a, in the treasure a, of the Sierra Madre. He's in the treasure of the Sierra Madre. I believe he has some uncredited role in the Maltese Falcon, but he kind of looms most prominently in the history of film noir, maybe in Chinatown, in Roman Polanski's movie in the 1970s. A great role. He plays the um, yeah, a very kind of John Houston-esque figure, someone thoroughly corrupted by greed and aspirations towards kind of achieving a material wealth that completely destroys any hope for uh, like authentic relationships between people. And I wonder if his... Um, he... I don't think any of the other directors that you have kind of profiled in the series were also actors. Of course, Hitchcock would walk across the screen in just about every one of his movies, but Houston also seemed to be comfortable in front of a camera as he was behind a camera. Do you think that that comes through? I mean, you you mentioned he was was great at eliciting, you know, Oscar-worthy performances, but is his ability to act as part of his, uh, I I guess, his persona as a jack-of-all-trades? Or is there something about a director... A uh, masterful director who can also act that you find, I don't know, exceptional in the directors that you tend to look at in these series. Yeah, I, I don't want to pretend to have more insight into him. I mean, I've read biographies of him than, than I do. Uh, I do think it's very much, this is another thing that talented people can do. And he was very much, in the way he was as a director, a kind of matter of fact. Not that these things don't matter or that they're slipshod. That's why he did the storyboarding. But... Um, this is one of the many things that talented people can do as part of their being a human being. Um, he d- he doesn't have a role uh, in uh, the Maltese Falcon. It's his father who he gives a little bit part. In the movie, I'll tell people, he's the captain who brings in what looks like it's going to be the Maltese Falcon and then immediately dies. That won't give much away. And um, he gave his father some grief, apparently, the young John Huston uh, filming this movie, uh, when he's all of 35 or something, his first movie, uh, by having his father do multiple takes. His father had been in show business a lot longer uh, and giving him a, a hard time about falling. Uh, there was a little father-son business going on. There. I remember reading some anecdote in which he leans in and whispers into his dad's ear. He says, Dad, that was a little too Walter Houston. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't uh, heard Which, that. of course, is his name. Um, we're running very low on time for this interview, and I'm so grateful for you coming by to talk about the series. And I want to give you the last word about uh, this How to Read a Film series and this instance of How to Read a Film series. Do you think that, you know, should people who go to Best Video this Sunday and for the next four Sundays, uh, should they expect something different than what they saw at the Kubrick or Hitchcock series? Is this kind of a fundamentally, is looking at Houston's movies a fundamentally different way of understanding American cinema, or is this just one more avenue into the uh, 20th century's most prominent art form? I think of it this way. The series is how to read a film, and this coming month, it's the example of John Houston. And so it follows the same format, and for people who've never come, I will tell them but it's about an hour and 15 minutes. Half hour is my commenting on things about the movie and the director and things that we will see. And a good half hour or more are substantial chunks of the movie. We won't show the whole movie. You have to have seen the movie yourself. And then it's followed by questions and answers. So it is interactive. But the bulk of it is actually watching clips of the movie while I comment over the dialogue. We're not listening to the dialogue so much. Look what the camera's doing. 
look what that character is doing. So in that way, it's exactly the same format as the earlier versions, although for anyone who's new, they should know that that's what they're getting into. It's a lot of fun. If you're listening to this show, if you like listening to the show, then you will like this series. So I've been to the How to, How to Read a Film series at a number of different venues, and I can speak you know, personally as someone with no professional or even academic background in film making or film theory that this is a really delightful way into understanding movies. So, Mark, thank you for hosting this series. Thank you for coming by the studio to talk about it. Really, thank you very much for um, the conversation. Besides uh, you know, the first um, screening and lecture is this Sunday, October 23rd at 2 p.m., is there anything else that you'd like to plug that you were involved with? Are there any other lectures at libraries around I can only town? say that for people who are interested in film, I will be doing again at the Fairfield Public Library in Fairfield, Connecticut, in the spring, uh, a series on great film noir. I don't know if you want me to give you the titles, but so it's going to be Shadow of a Doubt, um, Hitchcock, The Big Sleep, um, Out of the Past, and The Thin Man. Uh, films all from the 1940s, all of them considered classics in their genre by four different directors. And it will be, again, How to Read a Film, the example of film noir. Well, we will keep our eyes out for that one as well. Mark Schenker is a Dean of Academic Affairs at Yale University and the host of the How to Read a Film series. Coming up next, a review of the new movie American Honey with Alan Appel and Lucy Gelman. But first, let's hear a song called Man from Lowell by Ellison Jackson.
myself a try. Welcome back to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. American Honey, a new movie from director Andrea Arnold, now playing at the Criterion Cinemas in downtown New Haven, follows a teenage girl named Star, played by Sasha Lane, as she joins a traveling group of young Americans road-tripping across the Midwest, selling magazine subscriptions door-to-door. Seeking refuge from hometowns flattened by poverty and the malaise that comes from little promise of a brighter future, this hodgepodge of restless teens construct their own self-sufficient itinerant society, beholden to its own moral and ethical code and propped up by its own newly formed traditions. They've left a world defined in a negative way by its lack of a future, for one defined in a positive way by a celebration of this kind of perpetual present, buoyed by alcohol and cigarettes and ebullient rap music and constant exploration, constant transition from place to place while maintaining the same state of hedonistic excess. So, Alan, I wonder if, as you watched Star and her erstwhile youthful compatriots travel from the suburbs of Kansas City to the Texas oil fields, what you thought of this kind of new world that these young folks were creating for themselves. Is this a utopian society emerging from the ashes of impoverished middle America? Is it an amoral society devoted to pleasure and excess? Or is it something else entirely, a future for people accustomed to thinking they don't have a future? Uh, dystopia is what I would say, not utopia. And um, uh, I thought of a lot of things. I mean, I thought of Lord of the Flies, um, uh, this distinct uh, society. I thought of um, a movie from the 70s, I think, with Roddy McDowell about a bunch of uh, London uh, juvenile delinquents who are so removed from uh, the larger society that they think they can't be part of, that they that their, their, their cockney accents become like almost a separate language. And, you know, the language of these kids and the, uh, the, their whole style of relating uh, is um, frighteningly uh, removed. And um, this, this is, uh, I think, a really Im- Im- important movie. Uh, I, I'm not sure um, how, t- how much truth there is in the movie, that is, how much it really represents what the situation out there is, but, um, it's certainly, um, gripping and, uh, you know, a whole bunch of comparisons came to my mind. Um, but, um, the, uh, the, the, the first thing that I really thought of was that this is really not even a movie. This is a kind of ugly music video because the characters, uh, are only kind of alive to themselves um, it seems when they're singing along and drinking uh, Jack Daniels in the van, um, uh, I, I think it's I, I, I think it's a really wonderful uh, snapshot of a real social problem that we have. It puts me in mind actually of like Marlon Brando and uh, the I think is it the Wild One where he leads a motorcycle gang. This whole uh, kind of fifties idea of uh, you know the the emergence of um, you know the Jimmy Dean character like rebels without a cause. What's odd about this film is that they're selling magazine subscriptions, which is so kind of anachronistic and retarded tear. It sort of 
it doesn't work, but it does work. I think it's a really troubling and interesting film. So one, I think you've, you've hit upon a bunch of parts of the movie that I want to dive deeper into, but one is that this really, yeah, I mean, I'm glad you referenced Marlon Brando in the 1950s, kind of documenting the emergence of the teenager as a demographic. I mean, this movie is about teenagers in America in the 21st century. Uh, and Lucy, as you know, after we left the movie, I mentioned a few kind of works of narrative that came to mind as I watched and one was Lord of the Flies. And another is a movie by Harmony Kareen called Kids. That mm-hmm. I don't know if either of you have seen, but it's from the early 90s. And it is a pretty harrowing portrait of kind of uh, kids living and growing up in New York City in the early 90s who live in this state of total kind of excess, who have no parental supervision, who go around like having sex and infecting one another with various STDs and just doing drugs and nearly dying. And it's a kind of humorous movie at points because of the excess, but it's also like, you know, as if someone was a parent watching it, I imagine just their draw on the floor the whole time. It's not necessarily striving to represent reality of what life is actually like for um, actual people in New York in the early 90s, but I think it captures this kind of panic at what life could be like for people completely devoid of the kind of moral bearings of like parental supervision. And so I wonder, this is a, you know not a question we I often ask to lead up a discussion, but did you think these movie the the people in this movie American Honey are these good people? Are these bad people? Are these people who are not good or bad, but making good or bad decisions? Like, how'd you respond to who you saw and the actions you saw on screen? Oh, that's a really interesting question, Tom. I I mean, I I don't think I assigned to them moral judgments during the film, um, partly because I was so taken by the cinematography, which I hope we talk about at some point. Um, But I think more than asking the the central question of, you know, are these good people or bad people or are these make these people making good or bad decisions? And of course, like we all make some terrible decisions when we're in our teens and our 20s and 30s and 50s. And, you know, if we live into our 90s, we probably do then, too. Um, But it's who has control when or who thinks they have control. And I think for our main character running away with this kind of group of wild children or Michiganas or, or whatever is for her. It's, it's her way to regain control over a life that has spiraled away from her. She's with a, a boyfriend or a sexual partner who doesn't take care of her and who is pretty abusive. She is watching after someone else's children and she's stuck in a cycle of poverty that she recognizes as almost inescapable. And so she's trying to find a way out from that. And I think there is kind of this, like, well, maybe if I throw caution to the wind, everything will work out. You know, I think that Andrea Arnold does a fascinating job of kind of separating this idea of poverty and almost like personlessness. And that some of the people in this movie, like the Shia LaBeouf character, I believe his name is Jake. He is the young man who who encourages a star to join the van and who also, you know, he's this charismatic, good looking figure. But he also spends most of the movie imitating what he thinks is how a person acts. You know, every time he gets to a door to sell a magazine subscription, he thinks, okay, what is this person who's opening the door expecting from me? What do they need in their life? And I'm going to do my best to try to fill that role. And I think that one of the parts of his personality that really disturbs Star is how there doesn't seem to be any there there. I mean, he's always, he's like a chameleon. He's always shape-shifting. And it's that I think he's shape-shifting because his understanding of adulthood and of, like, personhood is it doesn't really matter what's going on inside of you. It kind of matters how you respond to and adapt to the kind of external demands. And, Alan, one of the things that so surprised me about this movie was how um, 
each encounter I felt like was building up to some horrible act of exploitation. You know, we see Star going off in a convertible with three, you know, guys wearing their 10-gallon hats and they're all chomping on cigars. And you think that this is going to be a moment of like, you know, the naivete of this teenager about to be um, abused. But in fact, almost every encounter like that ends somewhere a little bit mushy here, a little bit, you know, less certain. Were you surprised by where the kind of encounters in this movie ended up? Were you also feeling like, okay, you know, this intensely soundtracked movie with all the pop blaring at me, all this pop optimism is going to lead to some pretty dark stuff. Do you think it it went to a pretty dark place? Well, that's really is one of the sweet ironies of the movie that this is a world in which uh, there there are very few adults around uh, and there there are almost no authority figures. I mean, because all all these scams take place from town to town to town. And um, the kids never get arrested. You know, you, you, you talked a little bit about Hitchcock earlier. Um, you know, he loves to play, uh, to talk about the, the bumblingness or the absence of, uh, of um, police and figures like that. Um, and, and that's, that's evident here. I mean, there are no, there are no authority figures here, but you're, you're right. The, when the adults do show up, like the four Texans or the trucker towards the end of the movie, um, these adults turn out to be a lot nicer. Um, and, uh, you know, the movie sets you up to, to, to show this vast abyss between the world of adults and successful people and the world of the kids. Um, and, and their whole motivation is, um, is, uh, sort of to, to be, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? Like they're sort of like preying upon the, the, this society that won't let them in. They're trying to scam it. Um, it turns out, it turns out that, you know, the, the truckers and the oil men and the Texans are not so bad at all. But, um, you know, this is... Uh, they're kind of a continuation of the uncertainty of the teenagers, right? If the teenagers well, think that, you know, they're trying to find a purpose in their lives and adults must have it all figured out, these adults are not necessarily kind or benevolent or angry and exploitative, but they're also trying to figure out life on a day-to-day basis. Well, they've ruled out the adults. These kids, the, 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 these kids have left, the, you know, the, they've left home, they're runaways. And, you know, the way you figure out who you are in life, generally speaking, is you look at other specimens of human life who are older than you are. But these, these, uh, these kids only dip into um, the world of models for people who can be like them when their relationship to the models is to scam them, is to use them, is to, you know, and, and that, that's, what's, um, that's what's odd about the movie. And, and then the people turn out to be quite nice. And uh, um, uh, there, there are a lot of interesting things in, 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 um, in, in the film. Um, Lucy, this movie is a very long movie. It's, almost, it's over two and a half hours long. And it's I, really long. I wonder, you know, and we left kind of exhausted by the end of it, no matter how beautiful and no matter how poignant we found it. But also, you know, the more time that I have from the movie watching experience, I thought Boyhood by Richard Linklater is a nearly three hour long movie that documents, you know, what life is like for a young person in America today. Uh, I wonder if American Honey in the past, you know, few days, if you initially thought this was an exhausting long, long one, has it kind of elevated itself to an epic duration? Is this an epic sprawl of a movie or is this one in, in need of some judicious editing? It's it's in need of some editing. I, I mean, I, I think the filmmaker and indeed perhaps some members of the audience were so enamored of certain images in the film, especially bugs. So throughout the movie, we see these trapped 
bugs and kind of bugs that are trapped and bugs that are out in the open in their natural element. Um, And usually they're moving their wings or trying to move their wings and star often discovers them and frees them. And, And I think that's really, really essential to the movie. And it's extremely beautiful, um, just beautiful thing when, when it happens and when we see it on film. That said, I think the idea of the cutting room floor is so important for directors. I think this movie would have benefited from editing. It could have been a 90-minute movie, and I think I would have been just as happy with it. I think also we didn't need as many sequences as the kids in the van. I thought, well, if I'm getting another sequence, maybe something's going to change. Um, You know, there is this question of male plot versus female plot, and do you have, you know, exposition, rising, action, climax, uh, falling action denouement or do you have kind of distilled action and and or or distilled plot and uh and, and this think, is in the latter this yeah very I, much I think latter, right? this definitely falls into the latter but i felt like I, I felt like i was just waiting and waiting and waiting for something different to happen um and it didn't and, and maybe the monotony of it was the point but for me it it was way too long no a, mo- a movie about um a teenage ennui or whatever this is about shouldn't suffer from a bit of ennui you know there's also such a thing as a kind of like a peeing limit so i i actually i I actually thought the movie um you know it it, i think it it should have ended 20 or 30 minutes before um it in fact um ended an hour an hour before it and as far as the bugs go lucy that's right she freed after she freed the first bug which you know i mean it's a pretty it's the kind of um, it's the kind of um, metaphor, if you will, that if a teenager wrote it in, in a high school essay, the teacher would say, um, you know, okay, but it's not the greatest. But you don't repeat it because it's not that sophisticated. You know, I'm trying to figure out who I am. Um, I'm trying to find my own sense of freedom. One one bug would be enough. But there are all kinds of other very interesting uh, things in in this in this film. Um, I don't know. Uh, it is beautiful to watch. Um, but, uh, and it's quite dizzying to watch as well, right? We have a lot of close-ups and we have a lot of camera shaking and people rolling around in the grass, people hopping along in the back of the van. This is a movie that's often quite tight on the characters, but also one that is intensely mobile. Well, and, but, and there are very few, uh, very few plot points also. And when they happen, uh, they, they, they carry a lot of punch. I mean, a gun shows up when Jake has a, Jake has a gun and then, and then, uh, um, Actually, for the first 40 minutes of the movie, well, it's fascinating. You, you really don't know what they're going to sell, uh, why they're gathered, what the, wh- wh- uh, what's going on. Is this trafficking? Is this prostitution? And in fact, I'm not even sure at this point, um, were they really selling every, uh, magazines or was it just a kind of a, a gang of criminal teenagers in which everybody has his own scam? Jake steals jewelry. But also, um, get, there's a little prostitution to... on the side. So, uh, it's it, the greatest movie of all time having to do with door to door salespeople, by the way, is Paper Moon. I don't know if you know that film with, uh, is it, is it Ryan O'Neill and Tatum O'Neill? They're selling Bibles. It's a father daughter scam team. Is that a Peter Bagdanovich movie? Could be. So. It, yeah, it feels that way. But, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's in the 1930s. It's the depression. It's people, in many ways, it's the same story, except the, the, the predators are a father, an utterly charming father and daughter problem with these characters is that they are really scary and and um and and they're 
it doesn't float in a kind of dystopian something or other. There's actually a reference to Donald Trump at the beginning. And there's a, you know, are we Don, you know, she, when, when Star first meets Jake, um, she looks at his trousers, which, and she says, they're odd looking. And he says, yeah, Donald Trump. So that was actually, that's where Weird. I kind of want to end this conversation. And that's the political valence, if there is any to this movie. And Lucy, we've, you know, I've spoken with you about this. I found myself in a number of conversations at work in which I've been trying to not defend Donald Trump supporters, but saying that Donald Trump supporters don't just come from one economic bracket. It's not just the kind of poorest middle American, you know, white people who are supporting Trump. There are uh, people from, you know, every spectrum, the, you know, Peter Thiel's, the wealthiest of the wealthy are also kind of funding this horrendous Trump campaign as much as they are, as much as it is kind of buoyed by people who, you know, we maybe think of as having lost all of their, you know, manufacturing jobs and industry in the middle of the country and are angry and xenophobic and going to this. And I think that this movie uh, follows characters who kind of self-identify as white trash at certain points. And that kind of throwaway reference to Donald Trump is not necessarily one that is in support of him or in uh, trying to attack him, but saying, you know, Donald Trump is an image of this kind of businessman who's also kind of a threatening and domineering figure. And am I imitating him? Did you find any uh, any political valence to this movie? Did Does this help you, like, understand a certain demographic more? Or is this just you know, a bunch of specific kids trying to figure it out. No, I, I mean, no, I, I didn't, th- I, I think maybe, um, or almost certainly, you know, we can go into levels, um, and layers of economic valence. And I don't think we really have time for that, but I, I didn't think of this as a, a highly political movie. I thought it was more interesting as uh, as sort of a case study or, or even something that was, you know, mildly anthropological, in in form and indeed the director went around the country and she talked to a lot of teens and what we're seeing on screen is a mix of teens that she talked to that are not actors and then of course classically trained actors which i think is is really interesting i think if anything i i i'm not sure i would use the word political i think for some people to see this would be an eye-opening experience because some people are so insulated either by their wealth their wealth or um or comparatively impoverished status that they're not thinking of who's hanging in the balance in between. Alan, final word for you, but also, can you sing the Rihanna song for us that comes up over and over again? Or I'm sorry, I, I, you sing it in the background. Um, well, well, the thing is, I do, think, I do think this is political. This is this is like um, uh, hucksterism, uh, and uh, this is a, this is a kind of ugly low class version of scamming. And I think it really is, on some level, a critique not just of. Um, you know, this is a critique of a kind of strain of uh, American life from the quacks and the elixir salesmen of the 19th century down to today. And when Star scores $400 from the four Texans, she stands up in the in the truck or the, the car, with the, the getaway vehicle with Jake, and she says, I feel like a f- American. Uh, that's a statement. And how about, I mean, when she scores $1,000 later and she has a completely different response, but I mean, getting at what they're selling door to door, not just magazine subscriptions, it's they're selling themselves, right? They're selling themselves in a variety of different ways. And each encounter, Lucy, if we're talking about what happens differently in these different kind of scenes, these different van trips, I think it shows, at least some of them show different different ways to sell oneself. American Honey playing at Criterion Cinemas in downtown New Haven, I think gets a recommendation from all of us. Absolutely. And uh, thank you for listening. You can find a complete archive of all episodes of Deep Focus at deepfocusradio.com. And we will catch up with you 
next week.